And open your Bibles, if you will, to the 25th chapter of Second Chronicles. Tonight we study verses 14 to 28. Second Chronicles 25, beginning at verse 14. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. After Amaziah came from striking down the Edomites, he brought the gods of the men of Seir and set them up as his gods and worshipped them, making offerings to them. Therefore the Lord was angry with Amaziah and sent to him a prophet who said to him, Why have you sought the gods of a people who did not deliver their own people from your hand? But as he was speaking, the king said to him, Have we made you a royal counselor? Stop. Why should you be struck down? So the prophet stopped, but said, I know that God has determined to destroy you because you have done this and have not listened to my counsel. Then Amaziah king of Judah took counsel and sent to Joash the son of Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us look one another in the face. And Joash the king of Israel sent word to Amaziah king of Judah, A thistle on Lebanon sent to a cedar on Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son for a wife. And a wild beast of Lebanon passed by and trampled down the the thistle. You say, see, I have struck down Edom, and your heart has lifted you up in boastfulness. But now stay at home. Why should you provoke trouble so that you fall, you and Judah, with you? But Amaziah would not listen, for it was of God, in order that he might give them into the hands of their enemies, because they had sought the gods of Edom. So Joash king of Israel went up, and he and Amaziah king of Judah faced one another in battle at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel, and every man fled to his home. And Joash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Joash, son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh, and brought him to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem for 400 cubits from the Ephraim gate to the corner gate. And he seized all the gold and silver and all the vessels that were found in the house of the Lord in the care of Obed-Edom. He seized also the treasuries of the king's house, also hostages, And he returned to Samaria. Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel. Now the rest of the deeds of Amaziah, from first to last, are they not written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel? From the time when he turned away from the Lord, they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish, but they sent after him to Lachish and put him to death there. And they brought him upon horses, and he was buried with his fathers in the city of Judah, of David. May God be praised through the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the interest of these stories, the practical value, but particularly the way that you bring us to the most important matters of our life, especially that chief matter, that we would trust you, that we would humble ourselves, and believe in the one whom you have sent. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of the Apostle Paul's best advice, and sadly most ignored, urges Christians to avoid provoking trouble with people around us. 1 Timothy 6 6 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Not a verse we think about very often, but it's really valuable. It urges us not to stir up trouble but always trying to gain the things which in the Lord 
has given us. The things he has not given us, we should not want them so much. We should be content with what he's given us. That is gain with godliness. He added these words, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Romans twelve eighteen, And so Christians are to be peacemakers rather than peace breakers. Jesus taught that this harmonious attitude is one of the marks of his people. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Matthew 5, 9. Well, if there was a single king of ancient Judah who needed to heed all that sterling advice, it was Amaziah, the son of King Joash. The problem was, as the first part of Second Chronicles 25 shows, that he was a half-hearted follower of the Lord. And the chronicler noted he started out, verse 2, doing what was right in the Lord, in the eyes of the Lord, yet not with a whole heart. And the problem with a half-hearted faith is that it often develops into a negligible faith, and then it often ends as no faith at all. Amaziah showed his half-faith when he was afraid and when he took his army to battle and he covered his bases, if you remember, by paying some mercenaries from ungodly Israel. And then when the Lord granted him the victory, we see what half-heartedness looks like when it has been swollen with pride. Well, in this conclusion to Amaziah's story, we find that when lifted up in his own heart, half-faith became no faith which is why his life ended not in glory, but in shame. Now, before provoking trouble with his neighbors, King Amaziah unwisely began provoking the Lord. And he did so through the worship of false gods. Verses 5 to 13 tells how God granted him victory over Edom after Amaziah agreed with the God's prophet to send the ungodly mercenaries away. But to our dismay, we find that the king responded to this heaven-sent victory, not by honoring the Lord, but by provoking him. We see this in verses 14 to 15. After Amaziah came from striking down the Edomites, he brought the gods of the men of Seir and set them up as his gods and worshiped them, making offerings to them. Therefore, the Lord was angry with Amaziah. Now, in scarfing up the local false gods, those of the Edomites, he was merely following the standard practice of conquerors in the ancient world. And the idea was this, that when a nation lost in battle, it was because their gods had abandoned them, or even worse, that their gods had switched sides. Now, forgetting the Bible's teaching that idols are lifeless and vain, our passage this morning showed that in Jeremiah 10.5, he thought it good to not only take these gods with him, but that he would honor them. It would be awfully handy, he thought, to have some compliant gods, maybe some who had a sense of loyalty to him now, that they would be in his baggage. Moreover, the other, the other reason that conquerors would remove a nation's idols was they thought that they were depriving them of the gods who'd been assigned to that land. And so with no gods to serve, a rival like that would be easier to subdue in the future. Now, what is almost unique about Amaziah, it was very common for ancient conquerors to take the gods with them, uh, kind of put them, remember when uh, the Ark of the Covenant was lost in First Samuel and they, they put the Ark in the Temple of Dagon, that didn't go very well for them, but it's that idea, depriving them of their gods so they'll be weak. But what's unusual, you hardly find it among the pagan rulers, is he began worshiping the gods that he had conquered. Verse 14, he set them up as his gods and worshiped them. 
Now, if we were wonder how it is that the king forgot who had given him the victory, it was the Lord who gave him the victory. How could he forget? The answer is his pride. Now that the new king had conquered a fortress, why? You know how it goes. People looked at him with respect. He'd just been riding on a war horse in front of his soldiers. He'd be giving the commands that produce victory. That tends to do a fair amount for a man's ego, I, I can tell you. And so he, he now wholeheartedly, half-heartedly, came to the conclusion, he wholly came to the conclusion, that the victim victory belonged to him. So too then did the spoils. Among the spoils were these handy idols that now owed their allegiance to Amaziah. Well, it's not hard to see why the Lord was angry about this. Since he had granted the victory, the Lord expected the king would worship him with a grateful heart. Instead, Amaziah's conversion to Edomite religion, it gives us a first sign that his heart may be more than half empty when it comes to true faith. And Paul described this same attitude of unbelieving men and women in general in Romans one twenty-one. Although they know God, and Paul's argument is, no, no, you do know God. You can't not know God. You're bombarded with the knowledge of God just by the nature of creation. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking. goes on to speak of them worshiping created things rather than the creator, Romans 1.12. Well, so it is here. Now, the cultural commentators of his own time might have said, no, he's just following the the typical customs of the era, maybe a little excessively. But the truth is that his worship of idols invoked the covenant curse of the Lord. Now, to convey his displeasure, the Lord commissioned another unnamed prophet. There's a lot of unnamed prophets in Second Chronicles. Here's another one. He sent to challenge the unwise king. Verse 15, he sent, him to a, sent to him a prophet who said to him, why have you sought the gods of a people who did not deliver their own people from your hand? We kind of had a good point. If these idols that Amaziah was now worshiping were so great, why had they allowed their former worshipers to be slain? Remember, they were not only defeated, they were pushed off a cliff and all put to death. That's not actually a commendation for the gods who were supposed to protect them. Martin Selman observes that the Edomite deities had manifestly failed the basic test of any god, namely to save their people. In in contrast with Amaziah's own experience of the Lord. So if he was going to worship idols, you would think that these would be the last idols that he would serve. Well, pride not only hardens the hearts of sinners away from God, it also makes them intolerant of the Lord's instruction. Have you noticed that? Proud unbelief does not like to be told what the Bible says. And he showed which way his heart was trending by rudely cutting off God's prophet as he was speaking, verse 16. But as he was speaking, the king said to him, have we made you a royal counselor? Stop. That's what he said to the prophet of the Lord. Now remember, it's not like he was the world's greatest conqueror. When I was studying military history as an unbeliever in the military academies, I never came across the name of Amaziah. He's just way, 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 way down the list. He's not even that great in a secular sense. He not won a famous military campaign. He'd only beaten down a smaller neighbor, and he only did that with God's help. But pride 
Oh, pride had swollen his self-esteem to the point that he was willing to risk provoking the Lord by shutting up his messenger. His words, why should you be struck down in verse 16, might seem like gracious restraint, but they were a threat. They reflect a swollen ego willing to threaten harm to God's holy prophet. And so Amaziah's behavior gives a potent warning against the perils of pride. And the Lord's word comes to you now, not through prophets, but through preachers in the church. And it's the man who is proud of his great riches, who sits in the pews writing business memos rather than attending to God's word. I have a specific example in mind. A very wealthy man in a former church of mine whose teenage daughter had been converted and she, he, he was willing to come to church because she was being baptized and he sat right in front of the pulpit writing business memos while the word of God was being preached. That is pride that provokes the Lord. It was chilling to me to see a man do that. But that's what pride looks like. Stop, cries the philanthropist who is so sure of his good works that he turns off the Christian radio in case a sermon should come on. Stop, says the worldly man, so fascinated by the idols of the culture that he gives no thought to the state of his soul. So it was not a blessing when the prophet sent by the Lord acceded to the king's command. Verse 16, so the prophet stopped. That's not a win for King Amaziah. Today, the message borne by the preachers of God's word happens to be the only gospel that will grant salvation and only to those who believe to stop the sermon or rather to avoid it altogether by shunning the church is an act not only of colossal self-will but also of self-destruction. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So the worst thing one can do is to tune out or turn off the ministry of God's word, refusing to read the Bible, refusing to hear the sermon, because the word of Christ has the primary aim of saving our souls by granting them faith in Jesus Christ, and he is the only Savior in the world. And so the prophet's silence represented an act of judgment upon the high-hearted king. But he did manage one morsel of information in verse 16. I know that God has determined to destroy you because you have done this and have not listened to my counsel. Ah, you see, here's the great problem of the proud unbeliever that he or she must inevitably face. To refuse God's word is to provoke the anger of the one of whom Jesus spoke when he said, do not fear those who can kill only the body, but fear him who can send body and soul together into hell. Matthew 10, 28. And so the king, having threatened the prophet with death, if he kept speaking, why should you be cut down? His words, in the the words of one commentator, Leslie Allen, they turn into a boomerang of eventual violent death against himself. We have to wonder, did the prophet have a specific word from the Lord when he said the Lord has determined your destruction? Is that a message God gave him, perhaps? Or might he simply have observed and noted the clear signs of a hardened heart that prefigured destruction? I think the answer is at least possibly both. 
Surely he saw the hardened attitude of the king as a sign, not merely that God's judgment was coming, but that it had begun. Did we realize that? The, the, the provoking of God through unbelief and the mockery of his word is not only a sign that judgment is coming, no, it is a sign that judgment has begun. The record will show that at least in Amaziah's case, the warning of Proverbs 29.1 was going to prove true. He who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck, he will suddenly be brought broken beyond healing. Well, the state of mind revealed by Amaziah's confrontation with God's prophet does not seem to have left him in a, in a position well-suited to make wise judgments in his foreign policy. A, a spirit of provoking was on him. And this is how it works. He was not willing to be at peace with God, and so he was unable to imbibe a spirit of peace with men. And as such, we read that he took counsel. Now, he'd already rejected counsel. Now he takes counsel, undoubtedly from advisors, advisors who knew in advance what he wanted to hear. And taking this counsel, he sent a message to his neighboring king, Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, who ruled the northern king of Israel. Now already, you remember, there had been provocation between the two kings. Amaziah had hired Israelite mercenaries, but then he dismissed them, and they found that was shameful. They then plundered several of his parts of his territory. There was already tension in the lands, but far from seeking to reduce these tensions, Amaziah communicates what sounds like a personal challenge to the Israelite king. Verse 17, come, let us look one another in the face. You say, isn't that nice? He wants to get together for a meal. No, no, no. Oh, maybe it's a diplomatic parley. No, no, it's not a diplomatic parley. And Joash knew exactly what it was. He took Amaziah's words for the personal challenge that they were. Did Amaziah want to fight a personal duel between the two kings? Maybe. He was certainly at least summoning the Israelite army to open battle. Philip Ryken notes Amaziah was throwing down the proverbial gauntlet, issuing a formal summons to a military engagement. Now, was this revenge for the plundering of his lands? Maybe, but more likely, his little victory over Edom and his capture of their idols gave him an inflated estimate of his power. Well, the northern king returned a message urging him to think better about this provocative course. And yet he did so in a way that was itself provocative. He tells him a proverb that could not fail to insult Verse 18, Joash sent, the king of Israel sent word to Amaziah, king of Judah, a thistle on Lebanon sent to a cedar on Lebanon, saying, give your daughter to my son for a wife. And a wild beast of Lebanon passed by and trampled down the thistle. Now the meaning of this actually is abundantly clear. Amaziah is compared to the thistle, a briar bush, who has the temerity to challenge a cedar on Lebanon. That's a much stronger tree. And so he presents a scenario where the weaker, in this case, demands a royal princess from the stronger as his wife. Now, we don't know of any actual demand like that, but the idea is that he was arrogantly presuming upon a miscalculation of relative strengths. That's what he's saying. And so as a result, a wild beast of Lebanon passed by and trampled down the thistle. The point's clear enough. 
invasion into Israel, oh, he could try it, but it was going to be perilous for Amaziah. His Judean forces would not have the strength to handle what they discovered there. In Deroff Davis's version, it goes like this, a briar ought to know it is a briar, be content with its briarness, and not try to step out of its weight class. Well, Joash gives a crystal clear message in verse 19. You say, see, I've struck down Edom, and your heart has lifted you up in boastfulness. Now, ungodly though he was himself, Joash had read the situation very accurately. Moreover, he seems reasonably confident that he was not going to have a problem defending his territory. Remember the reason Amaziah had hired the Israelite mercenaries in the first place, because he'd conducted a, a census and his forces were too small on their own, he thought, to handle even the forces of Seir. And so Joash, sitting up in the larger kingdom of Israel to his north, says, this is not something that we're going to worry about. And so he gave advice that was urging him to contentment and peace. Stay now at home, he said. Why should you provoke trouble so that you fall, you and Judah, with you? Verse 19. Now that is sound logic for every one of us. James 4 verse 1 says, What, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? That is true. So many of our quarrels, so many of our fights are needless. They involve provocations that would have been wiser, more wisely avoided. In this case, God had given Amaziah victory over the threat to his east. So why should he provoke a new threat to his north? Uh, of course, here's the problem. It goes back to that half heart, doesn't it? The key to the contented, peaceful attitude that he needed is a settled faith and relationship with the Lord. And this is not what he possessed. Isaiah 26.3 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. That's saying peace among men, a peaceful frame, a contented attitude is a byproduct of peace with God. A, a, a saving relationship with God. The daily piety in our walk with God is going to be the source of the contentment and the peaceableness that will keep us from provoking needless trouble. If we can say with Psalm 16:5, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup, then we can advance to Psalm 16:6. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Contentment is a byproduct of a God-centered life with saving faith and peace with God in the communion he gives. And so the root of all this discontentment, his provoking of Joash, was his prior idolatrous provoking of the Lord. If we're not at peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ, the, re the reality is we will seldom discover peace with our neighbors. Isn't our world of, with, with uh, road rage and lawsuits between neighbors in the suburbs, all these things going on, isn't it a byproduct that we do not imbibe the peace that only God can give? We therefore are prone to provoke trouble the way that Amaziah was about to do. And that's what the final section of this chapter gives. It shows his life of trouble provoking leading to his downfall by the hand of both God and man. His downfall, this prideful, idolatrous provoker is brought down by both whom he's provoked, 
both by God and by man. Now first, the Lord judged the king by hardening his heart to Joash's, Joash's counsel, just as he had hardened his heart to God's word. Look at verse 20. But Amaziah would not listen, for it was of God, in order that he might give them into the hand of their enemies, because they had sought the gods of Edom. And so this idolatry had consequences in the settled opposition of God. I wonder if we realize that. Particularly if we're refusing, if you're refusing to believe the gospel, you say, no, I'm going to pursue the paganism of our culture. Okay, but the, oppo the settled opposition of God has to be reckoned with. That's what we have here. Just as his arrogant refusal to listen to God's word denied him the wisdom that his salvation depended on. Whenever we find that our own pride is making us haughty, and so when we read the Bible and it makes us angry, or someone gives us, particularly if it's, in a, if it's in a careful, thoughtful way, and they give us sound biblical counsel, but we react in pride, we should fearfully consider that judgment may be near. J.A. Thompson writes, God guided even Amaziah's pride in such a way that it brought his downfall, making him blind to truth and deaf to wisdom. The presence of pride in our hearts should bring us to an alarm what does the scripture say? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So the way not to provoke trouble that leads to ruin is the way spelled out by Peter in the next verse, 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. When you realize your, your heart is getting out of control and pride, humble yourself before the Lord. Ask for his spirit. Ask him to exalt you in faith. That's how he's judged and brought low by the Lord. But Amaziah is also brought low by his enemy, the Israelite king Joash. Now he saw that Amaziah was intent on battle, so he struck first. Verse 21, so Joash, king of Israel, went up. Went up means launching his forces. He went first. And he and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another in battle at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. Now, what's interesting is that the whole thing was Amaziah threatening an invasion of the northern kingdom. The battle's actually going to be fought about 15 miles southeast of Jerusalem. So Joash was ready. He had a battle plan. He struck first. He took the initiative to the pride-besotted Amaziah. And there, this actually was a site that gave control of a major trade route. So Joash is, is no fool. His army shatters the army of Judah's Amaziah. Verse 22, and Judah was defeated by Israel, and every man fled to his home. I wonder if Joash knew all along that he had a winning plan of campaign, just waiting. If he realized he had the forces needed to win the battle. If he did, he was right. Not only did he win the battle, he captured his humiliated enemy. Verse 23, and Joash king of Israel captured Amaziah king of Judah. That didn't happen very often the son of Joash, son of Ahaziah at Beth Shemesh. And what is more, Joash was different from many mediocre generals who knew how to win a victory, but not how to use a victory. That's what the, one of uh, Hannibal's uh, generals complained about him. He knows how to win a victory, but not how to use the victory. No, he knew how to use them. He, he went straight to Jerusalem. It's unguarded now. He takes Amaziah down there with him and he breaks down the wall of Jerusalem for 400 cubits. This is called the exploitation of victory. 
And 400 cubits of the wall, from the Ephraim gate to the corner wall, he sees all the gold and silver, all the vessels that were found in the house of God in the care of Obed-Edom. He sees all the treasures in the king's house, also hostages. And then he returned to Samaria, verses 23 to 24. Now, this is about as complete a victory as you can imagine. And of course, it prefigures, it's meant to prefigure what's going to happen on a larger scale when Nebuchadnezzar comes. Oh, the peril of idolatry. Oh, the peril of refusing God's word. Oh, how, what, how much, this is what we say in our own lives. How many bad things can happen if we skip going to church? If we remove ourselves from the word of God, total destruction can happen. This is a sketch drawing for the full life painting that Nebuchadnezzar is going to bring in years to come. And prior to provoking his neighbor and launching an unnecessary war, Things weren't that bad for Amaziah. He looked back on them fondly now. He had a moderate-sized army. He had secured his eastern border with a God-given victory. He had a functioning religious political situation. The worship reforms of the previous kings and the temple repairs his father did gave him a, a well-established priestly movement. Taxes were being paid. A precious opportunity for peace was at hand. And with peace, there's usually prosperity. That's not so bad actually quite good in retrospect. But they were lost because a half-hearted king had been tempted into idol worship with the result that his heart was hardened in pride by God's judgment so that he refused the word of the Lord and then he provoked a needless conflict which the Lord used to bring him into utter humiliation. And so the result now is an army that's gone, a capital city that could not be defended, an empty treasury and the chains. Oh, those clinking chains that Amaziah wore in captivity to his enemy. And so ended the reign of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah. Like his father, he began his reign better than he ended it. That's not the way it should be going. He began okay, he ended badly. He spent some years as a captive, we're not told how long. We know that while he was in captivity in Samaria, his son Uzziah began to reign. And so there's, there's these, this co-regency that actually occupied most of his years as king was with his son actually reigning. We know that Joash died, and when he died, verse 25, Amaziah was released. He lived another 15 years. And yet there was far from a welcome parade awaiting him in Jerusalem. We're not given the details. But he got back and he faced an anti-Amaziah party small wonder there was there and they had started conspiring from him we learn from the moment he turned away from the lord that probably refers to his worship of the edomite idols back in the beginning of the chapter and so discovering this threat to his life which his son uzziah seems to have done nothing nothing that we know to thwart he fled jerusalem he went to the fortress of lachish and there his avengers cut him down. Verse 28, they sent after him to Lachish and put him to death there. And they brought him upon horses and he was buried with his fathers in the city of David. You know, Amaziah dies as the fourth straight king of Judah to end his, his reign through assassination. And yet it need not have been so. Dale Ralph Davis chronicles his reign with this progression, a reasonably good start followed by an unteachable arrogance, a humiliating defeat, and with a bloody conspiracy. You know, perhaps in light of his example, we should go back and reevaluate the wisdom of Paul's exhortation. If possible, so far as it depends on you, 
live in peace with all. Now, theologically, the repeated stories in Second Chronicles about wicked and half and then hard-hearted kings, these, these stories bear testimony to the patience of God. It's a sinful people, but he, he hasn't totally abandoned them. When we get to the time of Jeremiah and, and finally the fall is going to come, there's, there's, there's generations of this. Oh, it's true, the Lord is long-suffering, slow to anger, quick to forgive. He is a long-suffering God. At the same time, half-hearted believers should be advised to pursue immediately a wholehearted embrace of saving faith. Do not be double-minded. It is far more likely that it is a false faith rather than a weak, true faith. When God's word brings us up short, exposing pride and discontentment, we should move in the direction the Bible is pointing to us like a man skating on thin ice that may break at any moment. Certainly, this was the chronicler's own intent as he recorded this episode, the sorry reign of Amaziah for his own generation. Remember, the readers of this are in the, in the early 5th century. It's the restoration generation on the other side of the Babylonian exile. And the writer of Chronicles, of course, they had just rebuilt the city walls. They had been built a couple of times. Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed them. But Nehemiah had come. This is after Nehemiah, almost certainly. The walls had been rebuilt around Jerusalem. The chronicler's going, you know, we can't afford to have them knocked down again. Let's not engage in the folly of half-hearted faith, of idolatry. Let's not, be, let's not say no to the preaching of God's word. We can't afford the consequences. Can you? No, they should heed the counsel given over and over in this book of Scripture, like godly Jehoshaphat. They should set their face to seek the Lord. Well, let me ask you, are you picking a needless fight with God by worshiping the idols of the world and especially by refusing to heed the gracious teaching of his holy word? Well, the reality is, if you are not worshiping the Lord in his church, if you're not attending to his word, if you're not responding in humble faith to the convicting message of Scripture, then you are provoking trouble with the Lord. No less than did foolish Amaziah. God has sent his own son into the world, teaching truth, calling sinners to repent, to confess our need of his saving grace. Christ has gone so far as to sacrifice himself on the cross to atone for the sins of those who believe. What then are you accomplishing if you say stop to the preaching of that gospel? If you refuse to listen to this divine message, speaking obvious truth about our sin and offering amazing grace for those who believe in Jesus? Well, the answer is that you are provoking the Almighty God to wrath in a way that is sure to find you out. Indeed, if your heart is set on refusing the gospel message, perhaps it's because God has already determined to, to, to bring your destruction, as he had done to empty-hearted Amaziah. And yet there always remains a way of escape, a way that begins with humbling yourself before God and his truth. His truth. The Apostle John charts the path of redemption. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First John 1 John 1.9, what a thing it is that we live in a, in, a, in a culture that is simultaneously utterly awash at sin, in sin at the same time refuses to confess that we are guilty of sin. Now, this is the way. Confess your sins. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He will forgive you and cleanse you. The Bible shows that when God comes to judge the entire human race, everyone in the end who falls under his condemnation will perish from self-inflicted wounds. Amaziah failed to heed the clear and valid teaching by his neighbor, Joash of Israel, when he urged him to stay at home and humble his heart. But the New Testament gives even more pointed, more, they're not oblique at all, very clear warnings to you and me, urging us to come to peace with God through his Son. I think about Matthew 25, where Jesus foretells the details of the final judgment to come. And he tells us the words he is going to say. They are going to be spoken to millions on that day. And they are these, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Is that warning not sufficient reason to stop provoking God through sin and unbelief? Instead, to come to him in the humility of faith. All who perish in the end will suffer a self-inflicted condemnation. And yet the Bible offers in its place a grace-provided salvation to all who believe. Jesus speaks to you now in the gospel in terms clearer even than those used by Israel's Joash to Judah's Amaziah. He says things like this to you. All whom the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. John six thirty seven to 40. Oh, why would you provoke that God any longer? Turn from the pride of unbelief to the humility of saving faith. Come to peace with God and then commit yourselves to live peacefully among your fellow men. And if you do, the God of peace will forgive your sins by the blood of his son. He will equip you with a contented spirit that doesn't forfeit but enjoys his blessings. Heed the words of the prophet Isaiah, whom God sends with his message to you. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And Father, if we really think about it, we will tremble over the story of Amaziah. And Father, I first of all, therefore, pray for people who are here and are professing Christians, but it's extremely half-hearted. Everyone who knows them says it's very nominal. It's obvious that it's not a wholehearted faith. And Lord, help them to realize the peril of toying with their own spiritual condition, even of provoking you to the wrath that would destroy them. And so, Father, let us pursue a wholehearted faith, laying hold of Jesus with both hands, opening our minds and hearts to his word, praying that you will give us the grace to believe and obey. And, Father, would you preserve us from pride? Here we have a man, Lord, who received everything from you, but he was proud about it. 
And Lord, you judged that pride and he was destroyed. Help us, Lord, to heed those wonderful, wonderfully helpful words that we should humble ourselves in your sight. And Lord, in your own time, would you be the one who lifts us up? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.